This episode starts in a shipping container, specifically a shipping container that was being used by a former employee of Standard Chartered Bank. The guy's name is Julian Knight, and Julian had worked for Standard Chartered in East Asia, in Singapore, Abu Dhabi, and Dubai, for three years. He'd worked his way to a top position at the bank until, according to Julian, he was fired in 2011. Now, 10 months after being fired, he was back home in Germany. And with him was a uh, 40-foot container of all his belongings from Dubai. This is BuzzFeed News reporter Richard Holmes. You know, furniture, clothes, things from his office. And in the back of one of the closets was a shabby old leather briefcase uh, from his time at the bank. And in the briefcase was a single CD... And written on the CD were the words J.K. Inbox 2009. J.K., of course, stood for Julian Knight. During his time at Standard Chartered, Julian had traveled a lot between the Dubai and Singapore offices. And this was long enough ago that cloud computing wasn't really a thing yet. So whenever he was going from one office to the other, he'd download all his work onto a CD, fly to the other office. And each time take a CD with him, upload everything, and then that CD would, would be destroyed. But for some reason... One of those CDs wasn't. This was the CD Julian was now holding. Did he have like a CD drive anymore? How did, what did he find in there? Yeah, so he, he he had an old laptop which he put the CD into, and um, he actually uh, waited for it to load up because it was such an old laptop, and put a pot of coffee on. Julian had dug this old CD out because Standard Chartered had recently run into trouble with prosecutors in New York for doing business with Iranian clients, violating U.S. sanctions against Iran. Specifically, Standard Chartered had been punished for banking those Iranian clients between 2001 and 2007. But Julian suspected they'd continued breaking the law right through the time that he was fired in 2011. And he thought this CD might have the damning evidence he was looking for. And so he searched Iran and um, multiple clients just popped up. And uh, it's safe to say he never got around to drinking that coffee. This is Suspicious Activity Inside the FinCEN Files. I'm Azine Gureshi. Episode 4, See Something, Say Something. So far in this series, we've seen how the systems in place to stop dark money from flowing through the world's economy don't appear to be working very well. Banks file SARS, but they also continue to work with suspicious clients. Government agencies sometimes investigate and levy fines, but few people are actually held accountable. So what happens when people within those systems see something wrong and call attention to it? What happens when a guy like Julian Knight points out something that looks suspicious to him? So these these Iranian clients that came up... um, did he know anything about who these clients were? Like, why why was it necessarily problematic that the bank was working with them? So, um, Standard Chartered is a UK-based bank. It has access to the US markets, um, and it makes a large amount of business from giving uh, banks and clients access to the US market. Um, One of the rules when entering that U.S. market and having access um, is that you, you know, there's sanctions on certain entities and countries. One of them is Iran. So 
for Standard Chartered to have access to the, the US dollar market, it needs to comply by these rules. I ask this question in part because sanctions are complicated. My parents immigrated to the US from Iran. And for a long time, I've heard about how damaging sanctions are to the people who live there, crippling the economy, making it hard to access necessary goods like medical supplies. But as Rich will make clear later in the show, these weren't just any regular Iranian clients trying to get by. And that's what Julian was trying to call attention to. Why was he digging through this old CD in the first place? Mm. Do you have any sense of why? Sure. So he had been fired uh, the year before after what he claims was raising concerns about uh, thousands of clients who had been accessing the dollar market and having their identity stripped from transactions. So the actual name of the client or their company wouldn't appear on their accounts. So when this flags up in um, New York, they just see a request for a transaction or a transaction from SCB, Standard Chartered Bank, Dubai, rather than, say, Bank Salarat or Iran's National Oil Tanker Company. So it was a way of, Julian thought, disguising the real identity of Iranian entities. So the dollars would be paid into an account that was essentially a blank entity. Julian told Richard that if you were determined to evade sanctions, it was the perfect mechanism to not get caught. Julian says that back in May 2011, he went to two of his managers at the bank and told them he was concerned they were still violating U.S. sanctions. Now, this is slightly complicated because Julian didn't understand at the time that the U.S. government, as part of its agreement with Standard Chartered, had allowed the bank to wind down its business with some Iranian clients after 2007. But Julian has insisted there was more suspicious business going on beyond those clients. In any case, several months later, Julian says he was told to meet with a different senior bank official, who suggested that perhaps he should reconsider whether he wanted to continue working at the bank. Julian says he tried to push back and said he wanted to stay, but he was fired. I must say that the bank has not uh, commented or given a reason behind Knight's dismissal, but they have um, contested his claims in court. So now Julian is out of a job, and he's back home in Germany, and he has this CD that he believes vindicates him. It shows that Standard Chartered continued banking suspicious clients even after they'd been investigated and fined by American authorities. He was so uncomfortable with the information that he had in his possession, he said that he got in touch with the Treasury Department through a friend who worked in the finance industry in the U.S. Julian says that he and his friend were invited to New York to meet with an agency called DFS, the Department of Financial Services. So this meeting, when they describe this meeting, it sounds like uh, a scene from a bad movie, but they, um, the address that the, the DFS gave them was a uh, alleyway in Midtown, New York, um, and they went down this alleyway and a, a single man uh, opened up this door and just asked them to hand over their phones. Um, from that point on, they say they walked into a room of around 50 individuals, all representing different law enforcement. Among them, according to Julian, were agents from an agency called OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which handles sanctions violations. Now, in this room, they spent about six hours walking law enforcement agencies through their documents, uh, detailing every single 
thing that they thought was breaking the rules, the way that um, clients were being hidden. And sorry, Rich, in this meeting, are they basically sharing the contents of this CD? Yes. This is walking through the CD. And so Julian's recollection of events is that the longer that he goes on, the more people actually start to seem angered by what he's saying. Julian and the friend who accompanied him say that in the aftermath of the meeting, nothing happened. No action was taken. So there's not a lot more he could do um, until he gets an email from a client relationship manager in Standard Chartered's Dubai office claiming to have hundreds of pages of documents that show the bank has been dealing with suspicious entities on a far larger scale than it's admitted to the US government. Okay, so change of scene. I want to introduce you to the guy who sent that email to Julian Knight. His name is Anshuman Chandra. And one morning in 2012, he's sitting at his dining room table with his family having breakfast and reading the news. And he reads a story about a Saudi bank, which had been accused of facilitating the funding of al-Qaeda attacks, including 9-11, as well as other terrorist attacks in Somalia, Sri Lanka, India, and the Philippines. The bank was called Al-Raji. The article went on to slam a rival bank, HSBC, for holding accounts with Al-Raji until 2010. But um, Chandra was deeply disturbed because he knew that Standard Chartered was still helping Al-Raji exchange local currency for US dollars. Anshuman Chandra wanted to know more. So he Googled Al-Raji. He told Richard about this in an interview. And I found uh, a lot of information. So I was a bit surprised that if so much of information is available to a person like me who has probably spent just a year or two in the bank, uh, why are they still dealing with us? Or why, as a bank, we are dealing with them still? He, at this point, is very shocked. He, you know, Chandra, much like Knight, hails from a military background. He went to um, school in um, India's Defense Academy, and he knew a lot of people from that school who died in terrorist attacks in India. So he was uh, outraged. For me, it is, it is a kind of a personal, uh, uh, you know, attack as well. And we're not doing anything about it. And he writes an email immediately um, to his supervisor about what he's, what he's heard and uh, links to the article that he's just read, stating that, you know, we need to end our relationship with this client. Uh, there was no response at all. I never received a response to that email. And this is the point in the story when Anshuman Chandra sends that email to Julian Knight. Chandra was working for Standard Chartered after Knight had already left. How does he eventually hear about Julian? So Chandra was working on the trading floor one day, um, when on the way towards the canteen near the trading floor, he heard two of his colleagues at Standard Chartered Bank talking about Julian Knight. So they were talking about, you know, this guy got us screwed, uh, basically, you know. And uh, when I heard the this conversation, that, like, what I could understand from this was that maybe Julian is the one who did his own investigation and, uh, you know, found out that this all is happening. So Chandra knew this was someone that he had to get in touch with. And did he know at the time that Julian had been fired? 
he, the two colleagues who were talking about Julian were saying that Knight had been kicked out of the bank for helping the investigation, which only made Chandra want to speak to this guy even more. Chandra says that with Julian's help, he dug up evidence that Standard Chartered was continuing to work with suspicious clients like Al-Raji. He finds that um, in a yearly profit report, uh, the bank says it's gained over $2 million from its relationship with Al-Raji in 2009 alone. BuzzFeed News reached out to the Saudi bank Al-Raji for comment, and they did not respond. In May 2013, Julian put Anshaman in touch with an intermediary in Dubai that Julian trusted. And Anshaman says that it was through that person that he then sent information to Julian's friend in the U.S., the guy who had attended that purported meeting in New York with Julian. The plan was for Julian's friend to deliver Anshaman's evidence to U.S. authorities. And then eight days after that delivery, he gets an email from an FBI agent named Matthew Komar, who says... I am a special agent with the FBI who is the case agent on the investigation into Standard Chartered. I would like to speak with you. So after their first phone call, Komar emails Chandra and says that he has some worrisome news. And it's that his name has inadvertently been sent by a member of the investigations team to the bank's counsel. This FBI agent was telling Anshaman that his name had been accidentally leaked to Standard Chartered's lawyer. But he said it's fine because the bank's lawyers had promised not to share this information with Standard Chartered. I, I panicked. I said, you know, what are you talking about? This is when Anshaman claims that Standard Chartered started to retaliate against him. Five days after that email, Chandra emails Komar again to say that his computer um, had uh, an unexpected scan from the IT team, and that he's very worried. Uh, soon after that, he lost access to shared files within the bank, and he says that his managers grew hostile towards him. I was uh, continuously being told uh, that, you know, we are going to shut down your department, uh, you know, you should start looking out for jobs. I, so he was uh, very suspicious that, that yes, the bank's counsel had not upheld its promise and had in fact informed the bank that he was the whistleblower contacting the FBI. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to imagine that the bank's lawyers would not be loyal to the bank if they are employed by them. Um, so what what happens after that? I mean, he's he's continuing to work. Um, is he Is he continuing to talk to the FBI? for a while after that? Yeah, he's very cooperative with the FBI and he talks to them over the next few months and uh, walks them through all the information. And actually, even after learning that his um, name has been leaked, he hand-delivers a batch of files to government officials in Dubai. And so he's, you know, he's fully committed and he's putting himself on the line to get this information to the US because he feels it's that important. And then in October 2014, so over a year after his first contact with the FBI, Chandra says that um, he gets a call and a male voice speaks down the phone and says, we know you helped the Americans, it's not good and we will take care of you. It was English, but heavily accented with the, you know, Arabic or Middle East, like Afghani would speak or like, a, you know, a, a maybe an Iranian or Iraqi would speak, something like that. And Chandra was already nervous on a professional level, but now 
he says he was starting to get nervous for his own safety and the safety of his wife and young son. So much so that he had bags packed in their flat so that they could just run away and go and into hiding when they needed to. Anshuman Chandra says that when he would get nervous about what he was doing, downloading and sending all these bank records to the U.S., the agent Komar would assure him that the FBI would protect him, protect his family. So he wrote to Komar and told him about the threat. Chandra wrote that to Komar and said he needs his help urgently for his and his family's safety. Anshuman says that Komar then suggested he call the local police. And I told him, I said, you know, how can you expect me to file a complaint with the local authorities saying that, you know, that these guys are calling me, saying that, you know, that I, uh, I've helped the Americans. And what should I tell the police that, you know, why are they calling me? That I've given data from the bank to the uh, authorities in U.S. I, I said, I told him, I said, I'll be put behind bars immediately over here. Because he has been leaking stuff from a bank in Dubai and he believed that he would be prosecuted for breaking confidentiality with that bank. And he thought now was the time to cash in on the protection that he felt he'd been promised by the FBI. But according to Anshuman, Agent Komar saw things differently. So he said, there's nothing that we can do. And, uh, you know, uh, there's nothing, you know, threatening to you. And then he just went cold and just hung up. And it was the last time they spoke for two years. So Anshuman was left wondering, why would this FBI agent who'd been actively engaging with him up and disappear, especially right at the moment when he was starting to fear for his life. Richard says it's a bit of a mystery. Komar later testified that their investigation by that point was already wrapping up, and he didn't find the whistleblower's information useful um, as they were not able to corroborate or validate their allegations. And while he admits that he discussed Chandra's information in relation to Al-Raji with investigators and agencies, they ultimately decided that it wasn't worth broadening their investigation for. There's a question here of whether, you know, even if Chandra's documents were worth nothing, he risked a great deal to get them in the hands of the FBI and even if they weren't any use to the FBI, he was receiving what he thought were very credible threats. And he had been promised protection. And he, he thought it was time that they came true on that promise. But it, they never did. And um, the threatening calls kept on coming, but the uh, calls from the FBI stopped altogether. There was someone else who was seeing suspicious activity at Standard Chartered. More right after a break. So all of this was happening between Chandra and Knight and the FBI. What is actually happening at the bank itself? You know, what, what happens shortly after the FBI sort of drops off the map? I mean, it's business as usual. I mean, Chandra continues working there. He continues to work under what he feels is hostility. Eventually, in 2016, Anshuman Chandra and a couple other employees who worked under him are let go. They're made redundant, though Anshuman suspects he was let go because of what he'd done. I want to state again that this is what Anshuman Chandra alleges went down while he worked at Standard Chartered. 
The bank and the U.S. government dispute many of the details of both his and Julian Knight's stories. And this past June, a judge threw out a case in which Julian tried to get compensation for helping the U.S. government in its prosecution of the bank. So why am I telling you this story about what two former bank employees say happened? Because when Richard and other BuzzFeed news reporters started digging into this story, they discovered something curious. In the FinCEN files, there are 232 SARs filed by compliance officers at Standard Chartered between 2011 and 2017. 35 of them feature customers that appeared in the documents Chandra and Knight sent to the FBI. Richard says this is a conservative count. They give considerable weight to the whistleblower's allegations and are evidence that the bank itself was alerting the government to questions raised about the legitimacy of some of its business. It was sort of the bank itself acknowledging that it was doing what these whistleblowers had said they were doing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's just a serious crossover there. You know, there's there's you have these whistleblowers coming in 2013 with all this information saying, you need to take a look at these clients. And then over the next four years, the bank itself, you know, compliance staff who has probably never even heard of Julian or Anshuman filing similar concerns about the very clients they were trying to hand over to the government years before gives them some sort of validation in what they were doing and the fact that what they were doing was the right thing to do. So up until this point, we haven't actually talked specifics about what these whistleblowers in the bank itself actually found. What suspicious activity was Standard Chartered flagging? Richard says that the overlap between what Anshaman was calling attention to and what the bank itself flagged included a whole host of businesses that are accused of circumventing Iranian sanctions, bribery, tax evasion, and money laundering. One of them is uh, a company called Al-Zaruni Exchange. Um, it lost its business license in 2016 for supporting the Altaf Kanani money laundering organization, which was alleged to have funneled billions of dollars across the globe on behalf of terrorists, drug traffickers, and criminal organizations. Four years after Chandra handed over documents with this client's information on to the government, Standard Chartered filed a suspicious activity report showing that the bank had facilitated multiple transactions worth more than 3.5 million for Al-Zaruni Exchange. Al-Zaruni Exchange was sanctioned by the US government in 2015. They did not respond to a request for comment for this story. The emerging markets is one of Standard Chartered's most profitable areas of business. You know, they make huge sums of money. And I think the US government gets over 2 million SARS per year. Over 2 million SARS filed every year. 2 million SARS that banks and other financial institutions are telling FinCEN, hey, you should probably look into this. That's nearly doubled over the past decade, but over the same period, FinCEN's staff has shrunk by more than 10%. So you've got more of these warnings coming in and less people who are able to investigate them and do anything about them, which is creating a huge bottleneck. And so ultimately, the bank has to have more responsibility to cut clients off when it suspects wrongdoing but also the government needs to properly look into concerns when they're put in front of them. So that's why, you know, th there's, there's a lot of voices calling for a, a revamp of the entire system. 
And um, I think if the FinCEN files shows one thing, it shows that something probably does need to change. In response to BuzzFeed News, Standard Chartered issued a statement which reads in part, We take our responsibility to fight financial crime extremely seriously and have invested substantially in our compliance programs. As a result of the investments and improvements we have made, U.S. and U.K. authorities have publicly acknowledged that the group has undergone a comprehensive and positive transformation over the last several years. The statement continues, The reality of the global financial system is that there will always be attempts to launder money and evade sanctions. The responsibility of banks is to build effective screening and monitoring systems, and we work closely with regulators and law enforcement to bring perpetrators to justice. Neither the FBI or Agent Matthew Komar responded to multiple requests for comment from BuzzFeed News. Both Julian Knight and Anshuman Chandra say their careers have been ruined after they pointed out what they were seeing at Standard Chartered. Julian has filed two lawsuits in American courts, citing the stress all of this put on his health. One, which I mentioned earlier, was dismissed by the U.S. government. Anshuman Chandra has joined the other, against Standard Chartered. Anshuman is now in India, in hiding, fearing for his life. He's risked everything so far, and he doesn't have much more, he says, to risk. So he's hoping that his testimony here will encourage others to come out and speak out against the bank because he just feels that people still need to do the right thing despite the the negative implications that it can have. Nobody ever came out in support of what I did. Nobody ever even said anything in terms of, you know, that, okay, what you did was right. My career is completely gone. I can never get a job with a bank anymore. You know, I have not been able to give my son a stable life. Uh, You know, being running away from Dubai, coming here, you know, being in the hiding now, we are trying to come out in the open. Uh, But still, somewhere in the back of my head, I have this, uh, I won't say fear, but... Some, some kind of inclination that okay, maybe something might go wrong again. I don't know. Next time, if the system is broken, what are we going to do about it? If you want to read the reporting this podcast is based on, it's available at the website, fincentfiles.com. Suspicious Activity is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and BuzzFeed News based on original reporting by Anthony Cormier, Jason Leopold, and the BuzzFeed News Investigations team. It's hosted by me, Azine Gureshi. Our producer is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our associate producer is Kim Baikema. Editing by Joel Lovell, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, and Ariel Kaminer. Fact-checking by Ben Phelan and Scott Pham. Our senior producer is Jonathan Menhevar. The episode was mixed by Johnny Vince Evans, Michael Rayfield, and Rob Byers of Final Final V2. Music by the band Friggs from their album, Basic Behavior. Special thanks to Grace Chen, Fergus Scheel, Samantha Hennig, Jeremy Singervine, Katie Baker, Alex Campbell, and Mark Schoofs. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. <laughs> <laughs>